Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, a lead pastor here at Encounter, and also a table leader for the Reframe Group, and that's how I got this awesome t-shirt. They don't just give these things away, all right? You got to show up, and you got to serve to get one, and you can do that at EncounterChurch.org slash events to learn a little bit more about it. Hey, um, just before we head on into the content of the next installment in the series, I want to give a quick look forward to what's coming up. Don't forget, Sunday, September 8th, the Sunday after Labor Day, is our fall launch tailgate extravaganza. And don't forget, we're, we're moving to three morning worship experiences for that Sunday only to expand, to kind of make room for everybody we believe uh, God is going to bring us. So as a reminder, we, we want to keep hitting this so much so that you can say these worship times, just kind of mumble them in your sleep. Nine 10.20 and 11.40, and we're asking everybody that unless you're bringing a first-time guest, family member, somebody to the 10.20, let's reserve that time for serving and attend, if you can, at 9 and 11.40. All right, we're in part two of this series called Quit Church. And don't forget that as a, the backdrop, the why behind this series, we're not just trying to get everybody to like walk away from church. It's not the idea, but, but it's an honest admission that sometimes some of the ways that we do church is actually hurting rather than helping provide this abundant life, this full life that Jesus came to offer. And so what we're doing is we're taking a look at some of the ways maybe that we need to, to retool our perspective on what it means to do church in order, in order to pick up that full life, John 10, 10, that Jesus came to offer. So last week as an example, we said, hey, listen, let's quit just stopping by and begin to worship weekly, to make a predetermined decision. That was the challenge last week, to attend worship every single weekend that we can. Like Aaron, like her, and her story from last week, to worship weekly. That was challenge number one. Number two, for this week, I want to say is just, like, this one's kind of awkward. Like, this one's going to require a little, little navigation around on my part because I don't want, I don't want you to leave with a, with a wrong idea about what today is about because today is about quitting, quitting just helping out and to pick up, to begin, to serve wholeheartedly. And so one thing that I don't want you to leave with today is like, well, okay, that sounds about right. Mid-August, volunteer push Sunday, right? Everybody sign up at Starting Point Desk. I mean, I'm not going to stop you, but, but like that's not the point of today. In fact, to take this a step further is I think we have, we have one of the best serving cultures of a lot of churches around. And it's not just me that says that. We're, uh, a lot of you know that we're interviewing for this executive pastor position. So if you know anybody, like, send them our way. But like one time we're doing these interviews and we're talking to somebody who was like, listen, the amount, the sheer amount of ministry that this church accomplishes weekend to weekend, but also week to week and year to year with a relative small staff size. He's like, I got to say, it is embarrassing. This is his word. It is embarrassing to think about my serving culture at the church where I'm from. It's out of state, big church. And it is embarrassing to think about how much we have like outsourced to like staff in order to, to not have to like get people, like invite people into this like serving culture. But at an encounter, he's like, holy cow, this is, it's just incredible. And so I thought, hey, that was really a comment for you all. So I thought I would share that with you all, okay? So this is not about just trying to like plug a bunch of gaps or fill a bunch of holes or anything else like that. This, this time together, this is about trying to retool our perspective on what it means to serve. 
Because I think there's a way that you can go about serving in which that you just kind of help out whenever there's a hand that is, that it, that's needed and it feels good to help out. And then there's a way to go about serving to experience that full, abundant, rich life that Jesus came to offer. And the difference here is I'll just kind of like, I'll tell a story. And the story is this. We have a steel roof, and when it rains, it gets really loud. So I can see everybody like, look, that's fine. Okay, it's light enough. This is, this is a story to, to highlight maybe the difference, the difference between, between helping out and that full, abundant life that Jesus, Jesus came to offer. Is that sometimes some of you have made the regrettable decision of inviting me over to dinner. I know, it's your fault. Okay, what were you expecting? And you're like, oh man, is he going to tell the story about the thing? I might. No, I'm just kidding. But like this just happens all the time, right? Where you go over to somebody's house and you've been in this, in this place too, or I'm a guest at somebody's house. And after the meal is over, I take my plate and I walk it over to the sink. Like that's all that happens. And like the level and the amount of thank yous that ensues as a result is just shocking. It's like, oh no, no, you didn't have to do that. Thank you, thank you so very much. You don't have, you shouldn't have. And I'm like, well, that didn't feel bad. So I go back to the table and I grab a serving dish this time or maybe a kid's cup or something and I walk that over to the kitchen area and it's like, oh, you should please go into the living room. We're going to put a pot of coffee on. Make yourself comfortable. You really don't have to do this. And I'm like, watch this. And you haven't, you haven't felt like more of a hero than when you put somebody's mustard away in their refrigerator. I mean, it's like, it's like, where's the confetti cannon because of what I've just done? I'm a guest in somebody's home. Contrast that, if you would, with what it's like at my house after a meal. When we finish the meal, my kids stand up and they begin to walk away. And I'm like, whoa, stop. They turn around and I'm like, you're just going to like walk away? Like, oh yeah, and they kind of like drag their feet back and grab their plate and like walk it over to the kitchen, put it next to the sink, and like, there we go. And I'm like, yeah, now let's try to get that mustard in the refrigerator as well, okay? Why? Because you're not a guest in this place. I'm not a guest. There's no confetti cannon or ticker tape parade when I bring my dish to the sink. It's just being a decent human being. It's the, it's the expectation in my, own, in my own house of what it means to be a family member. And, and, here, and here's my point of like why I tell some of this stuff is that it feels really, really good, doesn't it, to be a guest in somebody's house and have them say, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done. It feels really good to be a guest, but I will not experience more fulfillment and more relational wealth than in my own family and the community and the fellowship that I experience there. It feels really good to be a guest, but it is deeply fulfilling to be a part of a family. Now here's the question that kind of just like looms over our whole time together. And I'm just going to ask it and ask you to ask God to help you answer it. Is that in the body of Christ, in the church, are you a guest? And that's fine to be a guest. Many of us at one point or another, we were guests. 
And it feels great. And I hope you experience that together here today. But are you a guest? Or are you a family member? Or would you like to be a family member and experience that rich blessing of community and fellowship and co-laboring in the kingdom that family members get to experience? Now, I want to elaborate on that concept and kind of help us answer that question of what it truly means to be a member of the family by going to a passage in the Bible, uh, going to a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians, implying that there's also a 2 Corinthians, okay? There's a lot of letters actually written back and forth, and we're going to go to the one that's called 1 Corinthians. There's a Bible under the chair in front of you or phone-friendly. The Bible app is encouraged, and the words are going to be on the screen behind me. But as we dig into uh, 1 Corinthians, sometimes we have have to back up and remember that these are real stories. They're written by real people to real, uh, to real places with really big problems, especially in the context of this church that we're just about to hear. So it's not just like written somewhere off into Bible land. It's like an actual historical document, and we're like dropping in on one side of the conversation. And Paul is the author here, and he's writing to this church that he knows very, very well, and he has a list of things that he's going to get to. I mean, you can tell it's a mental list. It may have even been a like separate written out list of like, don't forget to talk about this. Don't forget. And because he goes through his letter and he's like, okay, and now about lawsuits among believers. It's like, why are you talking about lawsuits among believers? Oh, oh, okay, I get it. They needed to hear it. Okay, let's talk about morality in the church. Let's talk about, and he's like going right through, checking things off in Corinthians and he gets to this part when he describes what the church is supposed to be. And I think he describes it this way for a reason. They needed to hear it. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And so what, what Paul here is trying, to, is trying to do, he's trying to say, hey, listen, this church, this community of believers that you have, he goes, this analogy that we're going to use here, it's like a whole body, and it's, got, and it's got all of these different parts to it. In Ephesians, he uses the same image, and he says, for all members of one body, the body of Christ. That's what the church is, the body of Christ. And he's describing about how even though it's got all of these different kinds of parts, that's actually good, and that's actually a blessing because it's all still one body. It's unique in its parts, but it's unified in its purpose. Many parts making up one body, the body of Christ. And he, and he says this because he really needs it to be said and heard. Because one of the realities that they were experiencing then was actually one of the very, very same realities that we experience in the church today. That is, the church is so much easier to be a part of. And it's so much easier to run. It's so much easier to lead when all of the parts are the exact same. But that's not God's design. The design is that the parts are unique, but united in purpose. And so he goes, it actually honors God. It actually delights God and gives glory and honor to God to have the parts of the body be different. To have the parts of the body, each one of us, the members of the body, to be from different cultural backgrounds. It, it delights God. It delights God to actually 
have people come in with different gifts to share within the body. It puts a smile on his face. It's the way that the church is supposed to operate, except it doesn't make it easy. And one of the things they found was a particular kind of diverse body, a different kind of differing sets of parts, called an economic one. And so what they found in the church in Corinth is that there was actually, there was actually an abuse that was taking place within the church when it came to treating some people with influence and means one way and other people without influence and means an entirely different way. So it's just like Corinth, you have to understand, is like this Greek, Greco-Roman city, so heavily influenced by those cultures. You got to understand, there was an earthquake just before this was written, uh, a few decades previously. So like everything had that new car smell, whole city-wide. It was all brand new. It was, it was extravagantly wealthy as well. Archaeologists dig this stuff up and they, these homes up and they find that the homes by square footage are two or three times the size of typical Roman homes elsewhere. And so what the church would do is they'd get together for their weekly time of worship and they'd get together in one of their homes, usually one of the larger homes because there's enough room for everybody. And at those meals, sometimes they would have what's called today as the Lord's Supper. Except for they wouldn't participate in the Lord's Supper like sometimes we participate in it today. Which is they didn't have like a shot glass of juice and like weird tasting vegan gluten-free bread square to eat and call that a supper. They had an actual like literal supper, like a whole meal of food that they would serve. But the problem was that these like Greco-Roman customs would like, would like sneak their way into how they did church, how they did worship together. And so you think about what they needed to quit, probably this. The, the wealthy and influenced members of that church would all kind of naturally gravitate towards the place in the home where they're used to gravitating towards for a meal, the, the dining area. And so they'd all head into the dining area and circle up around a table there. And, and then other people, after that was filled, would, would kind of like line up and, and would, would enter into the, the living room and then the kitchen. And then the people with like less means or less influence might be out on the front porch. And, and the bottom rung of that particular ladder was going to be outside in the front yard next to the road. And then they would serve the Lord's Supper and the people serving the food would also abide by those same social customs in the day and it snuck its way into the church. And they would go, they would go to, the, to the dining area first and serve those people. And the custom of hospitality in the day was that you would serve them until they had more than enough to eat. And after they ate and were filled, they would take what was left over and they would go to the living room and then to the kitchen, and then to the front porch. And then if there was anything left over, they would bring it out to the front yard and serve it to them, except for there was often nothing left over. And so Paul is writing to this church, and he's going, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's like, this is not acceptable to be literally starving people in your own community and then slapping on the title of Lord's Supper onto it. This is horrible. You cannot continue in this practice any longer. And he goes on this tirade about what the church 
is. And he's going, I get that it's difficult. I get that there are people from all different perspectives. I get that you're supposed to be one community. I know how hard it is, but you've got to understand something. There's many parts, and there are different kinds of parts, but there's one body to it all. And you've got to understand that the people in the living room and the dining area are just as much a part of that body as the people gathered on the front porch. First of all, why are they on the front porch? Okay, this is a different thing altogether. But they're all parts of one body. No matter, this is so important, no matter what part you are in the body, participating in that body, serving within that body, is your way to be connected to something far bigger than just yourself. And Paul's like, you got to understand this. You're part of something that's not just you and you and you. You're part of something that's so much bigger, so much grander, so much more awesome than just yourself. And then Paul does something and he just really like just ratches it up a notch. I mean, he just finds an entirely new gear and provides this deeply, deeply offensive line that we kind of miss it today, but we'll explain it here. It goes, okay, verse 15, continuing on in the passage. It says, now, if the foot, and just hang on to like the foot thing, because we're going to come back to that. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, I just think about like the Monsters, Inc. character, like Mike Wazowski, right? And it's like, it's before his time. Anyway, verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would this sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed, God himself has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he, not we, just as he wanted them to be. If they're all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there's, again, many parts, but one body. I said that this was a somewhat scandalous passage, and I missed that at first reading until it was pointed out to me just earlier this week, that in Mediterranean culture, of which this came out of, they had a distinct ranking of body parts from highest honor to least. And everybody was just in on it. Everybody just knew. And at the top of the list of ranking of these parts were the eyes. And so they had a lot of euphemisms, a lot of sayings about how the eye is the lamp of the body and the eye is what lets in light. And they had, they had all these ideas about, about the eyes. And right after that is the ears and then the hands, but not the left hand first, is that they honored the right hand first. And it would kind of go down on this list all the way until you got to the very, very bottom, the, the, the least clean, the most unclean, the most detestable part of the outward body that they showed was the foot. And what does Paul do when he's describing different parts of the body, Paul goes through and he knows the order, but because he's giving the Jesus way, he flips it. And he starts off not with the eye, he gets to that one last. He starts off with the foot. 
Because one of the things that Paul wants us to know, I think Jesus wants you to know, is that when we do that, when we participate at that body, is that this becomes, serving becomes the antidote for a self-absorbed life. That serving becomes this antidote of the self-absorbed life because all of us, we want to be Mike Wazowski. We want to be the I because that's like the highest place of honor. So whatever function that has, we want to be that. And Paul goes, no, 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 I'm not starting with the I. I'm going to get to that last. What I want to start with is the foot. And people are like, nobody wants to be the foot, Paul. Nobody wants that. Don't go near the foot. They had, so many, they had so many deals about the feet. And once you like highlight this, it really starts to see that like some of these passages that we're familiar with, many of us, have these layers underneath them. You know those rabbis just before Jesus' day that actually um, described shoes? And that's why because of the proximity that shoes had to feet, their shoes themselves were considered deeply offensive and unclean in a ceremonial way, right? Was, and so... Um, the, uh, the, the rabbis in that day would write about like when something becomes clean or unclean and they were like, well, when, when does a shoe become so like unclean? And they had to make a decision. And they decided that the place, the exact time that a shoe becomes unclean is when the shoemaker pulls it off from the anvil. That's when it becomes a shoe and that's when it becomes unclean. Now, I'm not saying that's supposed to be the deal today that anything wrong with shoes, but I'm just saying like that's in the water, that's part of the culture back then. And so it starts to help us understand what's behind some of these passages. For example, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, he's doing his thing. He's out in the wilderness. He is a super popular guy, right? Probably because of his, his clothes and diet. I mean, it just made him like really wild. It's kind of an inside joke. You got to read the story. Um, check it out. But like John the Baptist is a very well-known preacher, and people are like following him all over. And John the Baptist is going, no, 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 I'm only the guy who's like pointing to the guy. I'm a guy. He's the guy. And, and like, and they're, John, I mean, you're John the Baptist. You're amazing. He goes, no, no, no. And when he wants to come up with an image to talk about how incredibly amazing the man is who's coming after him, that who's who he is pointing towards. And he's going, listen, when I'm trying to come up with just how amazing this guy is, he goes, you, you don't understand. He is, Jesus is so incredible. Jesus is so worthy. Jesus is so something that, listen, I'm not even worthy to tie the man's shoes. And they're going, whoa. Because they knew. They knew how detestable the idea of feet and shoes were. And so for John, John, to say, listen, Jesus is so something that I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to tie or untie the guy's sandals. That's how amazing the Jesus is that's following me. Follow him, not me. I start to get a sense, Jesus, in his, um, at his last supper, he's around with his disciples on Thursday before before he was crucified on Friday. And he's around with them and he's, he's saying that, that one of them, and he kind of side looks at Judas there, one, one of them that's in the room who, who dipped the bread in the bowl with him will betray him. But, but he doesn't actually say betray. He used a euphemism that we've translated that way to raise his heel against him is the literal phrase that's used. Because that's how to be offensive. That's how to hurt somebody, right? Is to raise that cultural idea, to raise the heel against. Because feet, the shoe was considered so remarkably detestable. 
And we see this even in, even in Middle Eastern culture, in Mediterranean culture still today. When, when we, um, this is going to date some of us, but in 2003, when the American tanks rolled into Baghdad and they tied up the bronze statue of Saddam Hussein, they ripped it down, right? And what do the people do? On, all over like the news reports, you could see people, um, sorry about this, in the front row, um, you could see people get out there and they would start like hitting the bronze statue with their, with their shoes. And it's like, <laughs> there's tanks over there. You're not going to do anything with your shoe. But it was the point that they were making that this was the most offensive thing that they could think of. During the Arab uprising, the Arab Spring, uh, President Mubarak in Egypt was giving this speech. And in protest, because the people knew they couldn't get too riotous at that time, in that exact moment, while he was giving a speech, people, protesters, silently took off their shoes and just raised it in the air as a sign of detest for what they were hearing and their leader at the podium. It's still a sign here today. Um, I was in Turkey not too long, well, quite a few years ago now, I suppose. And uh, I was doing one of these like trips where you kind of go along and learn about the archaeology of the thing. And our local guide uh, told us about this custom and said it's really deeply offensive to like show the sole of your foot to the people around you. So heads up, stay on your feet, keep them on the ground. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Well, I'm like a leg crosser, apparently, and you don't realize it until how much you do it. You just kind of like hold your feet up, you know, cross your legs as you're like hanging out. And he would walk by and he'd just like knock them down. And I'm like, point taken, I got it. I'm gonna work on that. And then it became like this whole thing of everybody else in the, in the tour group every time I would just, and they would just slap my, my foot down. And they kept doing that. And I'm like, nope, you got me. That's fair. Keep it coming. Let, let's go. And, it, and, it, and we do that because it is the cultural equivalent of walking through downtown Grand Rapids with like the full-on double bird hanging out. It's like probably not your best look as a pastor, okay? Deeply offensive even today. And what does Paul do? Paul gives this he starts off with the foot because that's the most offensive thing that he could think of. And he said, no, 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 we would be honored to serve as the foot in the body of Christ because that is the antidote to the self-absorbed life. I heard a story last year sometime from Indra Nui. She, uh, she grew up... Uh, in an Indian family with a uh, rigid uh, caste structure system all around her. And so Idra, she, she took on uh, and, and knew about the expectations and I'm going to say limitations of being a woman in that culture. But what her mom did was to prepare her uh, against that. And so her mom would sit her and her sister down every single night and have them write out speeches as if they were world leaders, presidents and prime ministers from around the world. And she would choose a winner of that speech because the kids would actually have to deliver it. Then she would choose a winner from the speech. And then that person got to be the world leader for the rest of the night. And just night after night. And so she grew up with this idea of like, no, no, I can do, I can be anything. And so Indra, she writes about, she didn't become by the way, she did not become an elected government official. No, she became, on one particular night, uh, 13 years ago, she became president of the Pepsi company. Wildly successful. And she was so excited. It's such a great honor. And it's such an amazing story, right? And she's so excited to share with her family. She goes home that night, 
Nobody knows it yet. It's not public knowledge. She was just nominated. She was just asked and she accepted to be the president of Pepsi. She goes home and her mom is there at home visiting from India. And she gets home and she's like, mom, perfect timing. Guess what happened today? I have fantastic news. And her mom goes, Indra, you're out of milk. Can you go to the store and get some? And she's like, okay, I will. But first, I have amazing news that I want to share with you. And she said, uh, Indra, the milk, it's gone. Can you share your news with me when you get back from the store from getting some more milk for the house? And she's like, why don't you ask my husband, Raj? And she's like, I'm not Raj's mother. I'm your mother. Besides, he looked tired and you look full of energy. So <laughs> would you go to the store and get the milk? And she's fine, okay. She goes to the store, she gets the milk, she slams it down on the counter and said, here, here's the milk. And now I'm so upset about having to get some milk that I'm not even excited anymore to tell you that I just took over PepsiCo. And her mom says, oh, congratulations, but Indra, there's something you need to know. That when you come through these doors, you're not the president of Pepsi. Your wife, your mom, and most importantly, in this context, you are my daughter. And so she did what I think what a lot of us would be wise to is that she said, when you come in, you can, you can park your crown in the garage and leave it there. What a mom. Uh, Indra uh, Nui would oversee the next 12 years of leadership as Pepsi with double-digit growth on average throughout that time implemented all kinds of new measures, hugely successful, all the while, no doubt, parking her crown in the garage. And it just strikes me. It just strikes me that God might be asking some of us to park the crown in the garage in some way or another. And that serving, by taking on that role of Christ, who, by the way, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, parked his crown on the cross and allowed himself to be dead and buried. And that's our king. That's our, that's our God. And every time we serve, it does something inside of us. Every time we serve, it reminds us. Every time we serve, it is the antidote to living a self-absorbed life. And Paul, he finishes that off now. In the next line, he says, Now, verse 27, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, then teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and all kinds of different tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret eagerly, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 13, a popular wedding passage, he's going to expand on what that, what that greater gift is, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of all possible gifts, the best supernatural gift given is love. It's, it's fun to think in light of this, like, like what part you would be in the body. I had a, um, a seminary professor who will remain nameless um, and anonymous because he still lives in Grand Rapids, but uh, 
he was, uh, he was telling uh, his class, my class at one point, he was like sharing a story, uh, no doubt in a constructive way, about a congregant that he had uh, previously when he served a, uh, a, a local church. And he said, just describing this person, and he goes, listen, I know that everybody is part of one body, but if I had to guess his part, he said, it'd be something in the bowel region. <laughs> I was like, oh, snap. Uh, that paints a picture. If you're thinking, like, what would part would... Dirk called me in the body, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> no, 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 like it's fun to think about, it's fun to think about what part you would be in the body. The spine for courage, an ear for a remarkable ability to listen to others or listen to God, a mouth to speak on behalf of God's truth. Right? It's fun to think about what part you could have in the body. But listen, every part, he says, every part is critical. Every part is part of of making up this body, which is a gift to the world. Serving is a gift to the world. And I just, I want to end the same way I started, but by coming back to this image that I introed with, the image of either you're a guest at someone's house or, or you're a family member. Which, by the way, after 9.15, just as a heads up, somebody said, my whole f- kids' families are all coming over, so I'm going to test them out, see how they do. And I'm like, thank you for weaponizing the sermon. No, no. <laughs> are you a guest or are you a family member? It's fun to be a guest, but there's so deep fulfillment in being a family member. It just strikes me how much I have poured in and how much I've invested into the lives of my children. I mean, I have put more money into soccer practice and cleats and clothes because it seems like they need them every season all the time because they keep growing into like food and education and just housing and everything. So many financial sacrifices, one or another. And like, when is the investment going to start to turn around, right? My eight-year-old has yet to pick up a check at the restaurant. I keep sliding it over like, are you going to like do anything with this? It's my turn again. Okay, looks like it. Get out the wallet, right? If the last three and a half decades are any indication for me and my family, it's like, no, I don't think that financial thing is ever going to turn around. Sorry, mom. It's just like, you know it now though, right? <laughs> like the financial thing is never going to come around. And, and I get it. We all get it. I say that tongue in cheek because we know, we know that having kids, we know that pouring and investing into kids, we know that the gift of family is in the giving isn't it? That the gift is, in fact, in the giving. Is that you haven't, you haven't gotten to experience such supreme joy on a Christmas morning, not so much when you receive a terrific gift, but when you get to be on the giving end of that. The gift is in the giving. When you invest into a kid's life, it doesn't even have to be your kid. It could be a niece, a nephew, a little from Encounter Kids. The gift is in the giving. When they run away because it's time to go and they stop like mid-stride almost falling over and run back because they forgot to give you a hug or a high five or a fist bump and you're like, the gift is in the giving. The gift is in the giving when you give that perfect gift. When it's your wife's birthday and you open it up, she opens it up right there in front of you and it is so perfect and it is so thoughtful that it literally brings a tear of joy to her eye and if you know what that gift is, text me, I have some shopping to do. Like, the gift is in the giving and I think That's why Jesus gave so much because he knew 
that the gift was in the giving. He knew that there was no other way for him to live his life and no better way for him to give up his life than as a gift to give to you. Let's do the same. I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, you have gifted us so immensely much. You've gifted us, you've gifted us your life. You've gifted us salvation, eternity. God, you, you have even gifted us a way to live, a way day to day to put one step in front of another, a way to get over ourselves, a way to be a gift to the whole world, a world that so badly needs to see it and needs to experience it. God, I pray that as we go out, we go out as apostles. We go out as sent ones, literally. God, I pray that we go out as your hands and your feet and we go out as a gift to your amazing world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.